Hello, everyone, and welcome to yet another Snow Sunday. This is the second Sunday in a row that we have had to call due to weather, mainly because the forecast was saying that we were going to get a few inches during the service. Last week, it didn't pan out, and that was frustrating. This week, it was so hard to decide to go two weeks in a row but felt that this storm was much more realistic, and as it's panned out, it's snowing as I talk here at 4.50 p.m. on Sunday night. So ordinarily, we'd be gathering for dinner, but instead, I hope that in about an hour from this recording, you'll be gathering around your fireside in your comfy chair with some coffee, some tea, your Bible, and just thanking God that we have the technology to still share the word together, even if we aren't physically in the same location. So, um, a couple announcements real quick. Uh, this one's very important. Next week, I don't have the chance, I haven't had the chance the last couple weeks to tell everyone at once, but next week we will be in the Cedar Building. It's on the same property we normally meet. It's simply a building that's a little bit lower. It's, um, if you, when you turn in the parking lot, the very first left you can make will take you to the Cedar Building. So we'll be meeting there February 17th next week. But tonight we will look at Exodus chapter 20, the Ten Commandments. And what I want to do is open with this clip. You'll just get to hear the audio, obviously, from the classic animation, Disney's animation, Robin Hood. And there's a scene where where young Skippy gets to enact being Robin Hood and pretends to save Maid Marian, who's the real Maid Marian. And Maid Marian's uh, maidservant, Clucky, pretends to be Prince John, the evil prince. And so he gets to deliver Maid Marian. He takes her into Sherwood Forest. And then there's this question at the end. Oh, ouch! That's not fair! Mommy! That's Prince Jenner! <laughs> Yahoo! Now I got you! Oh, mercy! Mercy! This is the part where you drag your lady fair off to Sherwood Forest. Come on, lady fair, let's go. Oh, Robin, you're so brave and impetuous. Oh, so this is Sherwood Forest. Yeah, I guess so. Well, now what are we going to do? Well, now what are we going to do? I love that question. I feel like that's where many of us exist. And that is where Israel may have existed had God not descended on Mount Sinai and given them direction. See, they were, like the poor peasants of Nottingham, enslaved under Pharaoh as they were enslaved by Prince John, heavily taxed. The Israelites were heavily enslaved. And so, God delivers them. He leads them out of Egypt and into the wilderness. And there, freed from Egypt, as Skippy freed Maid Marian for pretend, you can then ask, 
okay, we have liberty. Now what are we going to do? I hope that we don't live here for too long in our Christian walk. Because this is what God wants to do in our lives. He wants to lead us from slavery to sovereignty. The answer to the question, well, now what are we going to do, is, well, I freed you from slavery, now I want to lead you to sovereignty. God is not just about getting the chains off of our wrists. He's about putting the crown on our head. So, he gives Israel ten steps from slavery to sovereignty. Look, if you will, at Exodus chapter 20. And I want to emphasize, we'll go through all ten of the steps, or as you know them, the ten commandments. But I want to emphasize the opening. We often neglect this. Exodus 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Right before God utters the first of his ten so-called commandments, he lets Israel know why he's giving these commandments. He reminds them of their context. He reminds them of where they have come from so that they can see these commands as steps to get where he's trying to lead them to. You were in the house of slavery. Remember that as you hear these ten words. You were slaves. And as a slave is always told what to do, is always on the master's time schedule, always fed whatever's given to them, it's hard for a slave to suddenly and instantly know what to do with freedom. And so God, in his great wisdom, is trying to lead Israel through these ten steps from slavery to sovereignty. In some ways, it's like a 12-step program. As an alcoholic is enslaved, Israel was enslaved. But God has a 10-step program and says, this is the way out of your slavery forever. Because left on our own, we will go back to slavery. As the Proverbs say, as a dog returns to its vomit, so a fool returns to his folly. We will go back to slavery because that's what we know We need a step program to get us forward. God has in the Ten Commandments given us ten steps from slavery to sovereignty. If we follow these steps, we will find sovereignty over life. Now, I'm using the phrase ten steps because ten commandments sometimes can miss the point. This is not God trying to exert authority and power over a people. God is not insecure. He does not need to flex his muscles and prove himself to his people. God is giving them these so-called commandments to guide them. God leads us from slavery to sovereignty. I delivered you out of the house of slavery. 
So, rather than looking at these ten and debating whether or not they still apply in the New Testament and did Jesus affirm it or change it, let's look at these as God's plan to help you eliminate your addiction to slavery. So number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Pretty simple. What I want to do with each of these is give you a commentary. I rewrote each of them in a way that may shed light on its meaning. Because for a while, I've looked at the ten, these ten steps and thought, I mean, I get that they're important, but some of them just seem like it's not hitting me. Like I'm missing something in a 2,500 year gap between the words and my present context. And maybe you felt the same. Um, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to read it as it is in the Bible and then provide a little commentary on it by rephrasing it a little bit. I hope you will allow this. And I think you will find, as most people who have heard me do this, um, particularly my high school students, have have shared with me that it has been particularly helpful for them. So this first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, is not a particularly challenging one. But to put it in the context of slavery, that God is leading us from slavery to sovereignty, it may help to hear it like this. Do not give tribute to any other king. They will enslave you. Interesting. First, we're using the word God as a king, which it means in the Hebrew. Elohim is a title. The word God is a title. It's not a name. And it can be translated to be king, prince, or judge, or God. All of them have one thing in common. They make decisions about lives and about laws. So, do not put another God before me. God is saying, don't give your tribute, your lives, your resources to another king. Because unlike me, if you give any of yourself to them, they will enslave you. Other gods is a sure step to go back into the house of slavery. The interesting thing is that all the gods of the world around us, all the kings that want to rule us, the things, the people, the politics, all of them demand something of us. They demand tribute to be powerful. God doesn't need our tribute to be powerful. He is powerful. And in fact, what Ephesians chapter 4 tells us is that when Jesus ascended, he gave gifts to us. Normally, when a king ascends the throne, all of the faithful come and give gifts to him to say, we've pledged our allegiance. But Jesus turned this around and opened the treasuries of heaven and gave them to us. That is much of what the book of Ephesians is about. It's about the king, Jesus, who ascends the throne and opens the treasuries of heaven that we can become rich heirs, sovereign rulers with him. Number two, let's move on. Verse four, second step. You shall not make for yourself a carved image 
or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, Yahweh your God, or Yahweh your King, am a jealous King, a jealous God, visiting the iniquities of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. So, you could read this as a step out of slavery. You can read this like this. Do not reduce my power to any created thing. They will enslave you. When we reduce the power of God to a created thing, a substance, a person, an idea, a nation, we give the power of the Almighty God to that thing, and it will then have possession over us. It will enslave us. You see, God's power is meant to liberate. That's why he's the greatest power. He doesn't need bonds and bounds. He's beyond those things. But as soon as we look at God and try to put that freedom in a limited created thing, it's now limited. And we can never be greater than the things that we create because you can't be greater than yourself without something other than yourself pulling yourself out of it. We will always be imprisoned if we continually reduce God to the things around us. That, of course, is one of the things that pantheism does, right? The gods and nature are one. There's no transcendence. They don't ever become more than nature. We need to be careful that we do not try to shove God into, oh, let's say, our American dream or our policies or our beliefs about the world or our missions in our churches we must be careful that we don't do that. Now, one of the obvious things here is that God's saying, I made man in my image. Don't make me in man's image. And unfortunately, that's what we do. We carve God into man's image. God has become a thing that we want him to be. That's why we need the Bible. That's why we need the Bible to keep telling us who God is, not who we think he is. The third step, how God leads us from slavery to sovereignty. Verse 7, you shall not take the name of Yahweh your king in vain, for Yahweh will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. I might step on some toes here, but this verse has nothing to do with cussing. Now, I agree, cuss words need to be limited, or eliminated, but this is not what this verse is trying to tell us. And time and time again I hear people say, you know, third commandment, don't take the Lord your God's name in vain, and that's not exactly what it's saying. See, back in these times, people would use the names of their deities to curse one another because they were trying to call upon a higher power than themselves. So I have rephrased this 
to sound like this. Do not use my authority to manipulate the will of others. You will enslave them. In other words, to take the name of God in vain is to use his name to have power over other people. And he doesn't enslave us, so why would we use his name to enslave them? This has happened to me. I remember being called into the pastor's office. This was way back when I was fresh out of high school. And I was interning with a church. The majority of my role was a janitor. I cleaned up the facilities, did a lot of trash bags, a lot of vacuuming, and a lot of other odds and ends. And then on Sundays, I would get to lead worship. I was part of a cycle of worship leaders. And occasionally I got to fill in for the youth pastor whom I'm, who, whom I helped in the middle of the week. But the pastor got wind that I began to feel, feel this itch for teaching the Bible and desired to go to the Calvary Chapel School of Ministry in Costa Mesa. Well, as soon as he got wind of that, he called me into his office. I remember coming in and his office was fairly small. His wife was there. And the two of them sat behind his desk, and I came in very awkwardly. I don't remember if they offered me a seat or not, but I remember standing back against the wall, hands behind my back, between my back and the wall, and just sweating and feeling completely uncomfortable. What they proceeded to tell me was that God told them that I was out of his will for wanting to go to school. Now, I, at that moment, was impressionable and young, and part of me started to worry. Maybe I've misheard God. My pastor here is telling me that God says I'm out of his will. But fortunately, God has given me enough grace in that moment to see past it and have counselors who encouraged me to go to school anyways. And I see now, looking back, that God never told him that I was out of God's will. It was not his job to tell me anyways. He was saying that to control me. He didn't want to lose me as one of his worship leaders. So, you pull the God card. God doesn't want you to do that. And maybe you can scare people into doing what you want them to do. That is manipulation. That is using God's name to enslave another. That is what the third step is telling us not to do. Step four. Verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Remember God created the world in six days and on the seventh he rested? That became known as the Sabbath. It continues. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to Yahweh your king. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days Yahweh made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, Yahweh blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. I rephrased this fourth step as, Come to my banquet and ball every seventh day 
celebrate your freedom. Come to my banquet and ball every seventh day, celebrate your freedom. You might be going, how in the world? Well, here's how. So, in Genesis 1, not to be too repetitive, but we see God creating everything in six days. On the seventh day, it says he rested, Genesis chapter 2. He rested. The word rest doesn't merely mean kicking up your feet. The word in, in the context of the culture meant that moment when everything is done, and then you enjoy the fruit of your hands. Or put another way, after he created everything for six days, he moved in to the creation he made and enjoyed it. There was nothing left to conquer. Everything was in order so he could rest. Job was accomplished. He was there with his creation. And so, you can imagine, if the creator moves into his creation, that means times are good. It's a banquet. And this is what we see God inviting us to at the end of the Bible is a banquet, is that one day everything, this mess and the sin of the world is going to be cleaned up and he will be inviting us to the wedding feast of the Lamb, a banquet. See, he's bringing everything back to what it originally was before sin ruined the creation. God, we can imagine, hosted a banquet with Adam and Eve and all of creation, perhaps right there at the tree of life the living tree, the tree where you commune with God and have life. This is what the Sabbath is about. It's about celebrating the creator God who is going to throw a festival over the entire cosmos when he eventually wins. So every seventh day, and now remember, this isn't slavery, this is freedom. So it does not have to be literally every seventh day, but give yourself periods of life where you get to come to a place where you can enjoy God's company. Celebrate your freedom. The fourth step out of slavery reminds us that you aren't a slave anymore. Sometimes we have to practice life like free people in order to enjoy our freedom. Celebrate your freedom every seventh day. That, by the way, is what church really is. It's our gathering together to celebrate our freedom in Christ. It's a feast, which is why we take communion every week. Now, granted, for economic reasons, we don't literally have a feast of communion. But that's the idea, is that we're coming to the banquet table of the king. We're coming to his ball. We're celebrating our freedom in him. So, be free. Live free. Let the times you're in church be times when you have God show you the things that are enslaving you and let them go and celebrate the freedom we have in Christ. Throw down religion if that's holding you down. Throw down human expectations and traditions. Throw down the demands of work or the demands of the ego that says, if I don't accomplish this or if I don't succeed in that or if I fail here, then I will be deemed worthless. Throw all of that down and celebrate freedom. Dance, sing, and feast with the king. That's what the fourth step is about. Step five, verse 12. Honor your father and your mother, which I rephrased as, honor your parents, their wisdom will keep you free. 
Now, I understand most of you listening are adults now. You're parents. You may even have grandchildren. So maybe this one's a little out of your league. But I'm realizing the older I get, how wise my parents have always been. Their their wisdom has kept me free. I'm so thankful I had parents who had wisdom and who sought to teach me and that I had the sense, the Bible training as a youth, to honor them, that I have few regrets by going against my parents. Their wisdom kept me free. And now I try to spend a lot of time with teenagers as I teach uh, Bible classes at Lake Road Christian School, helping them to see the wisdom of those older than them. They're not trying, and we can all, in a way, see this in some good authorities, and God himself. They're not trying to kill our joy. They're trying to share the wisdom toward sovereignty. Step six, verse 13, you shall not murder. (laughs) Some of these commands are universal. Other societies had them as well, and here's one of them. You shall not murder. But here's how we can begin to think of this and begin to apply this. I'm sure the majority of you I'm talking to have not murdered and don't plan to murder. You may have some angry thoughts about your neighbor who's shoveling his berm right now as you look outside into your driveway. Yeah, but you're probably not going to murder him. Now, I rephrase this like this. Be pro-life from womb to tomb. Violence will enslave you. Be pro-life. Most of us are right there. But notice, from womb to tomb. A lot of us are pro-life about the womb, let the children live, but to tomb as well. Are we pro-life in all things, or are we encouraging violence? Are we encouraging bloodshed? Violence will enslave you. Once an act of violence is committed, and that violence is retaliated with violence A cycle of revenge happens that never ends. It's why we've had war for thousands of years. Jesus, of course, took this to also mean don't even hate your brother. Because these are areas where violence will enslave you. Even violent thoughts will enslave you. There's this great moment in The Great Divorce where uh, C.S. Lewis's fictional account of people in hell who get to visit heaven for a day. And one of the people from hell is talking to one of the people from heaven, and that person in heaven had committed murder on earth, and the person from hell cannot believe that this person who committed murder is in heaven, and says, what kind of a place will allow you in here? And and the person in heaven goes on to say, look, that's been forgiven, we've moved on from that. But then they begin to talk about the hatred in their hearts, and how that enslaved them over the course of many years. The, the murder was an act of a moment, but the hatred was enslaving them day after day after day. Sorry that I'm not um, recalling that precisely, but um, but there's this idea, if we harbor bitterness, if we seethe with angry thoughts about each other, it's an energy that will rob us of joy, of having the strength to go on with life. It will enslave you. It will eat you from the inside out. We must practice being pro-life from womb to tomb to every face we see. We are for life. Step seven. You shall not 
commit adultery, which I've rephrased as enjoy sex with one person. Sex will enslave you. <laughs> Boy, are we seeing that in our culture. Do not commit adultery. So we're expanding this to mean, look, sex with one person. Because the person who has sex with more than one person is enslaved by sex, by the desire, by the passion. God created sex. He wanted us to use it. But sex, when it gets out of balance, begins to control us. And then the balance is out of order. We should be in charge of sex, but sex has become in charge of us. So we see rape, we see pornography, we see child pornography, we see sex trafficking, we see homosexuality, we see all kinds of things in our society. We see adultery, we see affairs, we see premarital sex, we see HIVs, because sex has enslaved us. It has enslaved us. You tell someone that they should wait for marriage or that they should not have sex outside of marriage, that they should stick with their spouse, they will get angry. They will tell you you can't tell them what to do, that they have a right. If it feels right, you should do it. There's all kinds of verbiage in our culture that will tell you sex has enslaved us. So if you want to live from slavery to sovereignty, Hold to the Bible's high morals on sexuality. Number eight, verse 15. You shall not steal. Rephrased as, let everyone have their fair share. Stealing enslaves you and others. Naturally, to steal from someone else is enslaving them, because now they're restricted. But your need to steal is going to enslave you. Because as you steal, now you're going to have to make up lies for what you stole, or you're going to have to keep stealing, because you're going to develop this dependency on taking what's not yours. God wants you to move from slavery to sovereignty. So learn to work with your hands, as Paul admonishes in Ephesians chapter 5. Second um, Timothy as well, I believe. It's the top of my head. I believe Ephesians 5 talks about um, work with your hands so that you have something to give to somebody. The giver is a free person, right? Because they have something to give. And then I believe it's 2 Timothy somewhere in there. It's one of Paul's writings, I believe, to Timothy. Uh, it says, look, the one who works, let him eat. Oh, it came to me. It's one of the Thessalonian books. They're next door to each other. Number 9, verse 16 you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Rephrased as, tell the truth and speak well of others. Gossip, slander, and lies will enslave you. Isn't that the truth? As soon as we begin to gossip, slander, and lie, we become slaves to what we have said. Now you have to stick with that story forever or be caught as a liar. You gossip about someone, now you have to be worried about who's listening. You have to be worried about what they think about you if they find out. You have to begin to see that person as lower than yourself because you've gossiped. Same with slander. It's just a much more aggressive form. Public slander. I've been slandered. It's not fun. Yes, it enslaves the person you're talking about, no doubt. But I think the true crime is the person who speaks it. 
The people I've been slandered by are clearly unhappy people, and I would not categorize them as people living in sovereignty. Something is enslaving them. Something's making them unhappy that makes them shout out, cry out, say what they say. Remember, these are God's steps, his ten steps to move us from slavery to sovereignty. Finally, number 10, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. I rephrase it as find contentment in what you have. Covetousness, jealousy, and envy will enslave you. Boy, do I know that. I remember being so, and of course sometimes I don't know which word to use, sometimes I use all three. I remember a time being so covetous, jealous, and envious of one of my friends. Because he would walk into a room and everyone would notice him, and I would instantly become invisible. I wouldn't matter. Sometimes I swore I could just simply leave and no one would even wonder where I went. So what did I do? I seethed with covetousness, jealousy, and envy. And man, did it enslave me. Every time he was around, it owned me. Every time I heard something good happen about him, I groaned. Every time something bad happened to him, I rejoiced. I was a human response to what happened in his life. Yep, he owned me and he never knew it. Because I gave my power to him through covetousness, jealousy, and envy. God wants us to live sovereignly. Therefore, he says, do not covet. Or, find contentment in what you have. There's a very popular verse, Philippians 4, verse 13, which reads like this. In fact, you know it. I'm only turning to it because I need to tell you the context around it, so you may want to find it. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians 4, 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Isn't that great? And then we see it plastered on postcards of people doing a heel grab on a snowboard or on a picture nicely framed in an office about someone climbing Mount Everest. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You see the surfer going down pipeline in in Hawaii and just all these impossible physical feats. Someone doing a slam dunk. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's nice. But it's missing Paul's point. What is his point? Read the context around it with me. Philippians 4 verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned. So Paul's talking about how he has gone through some stuff, and the Philippians were concerned, and he's thankful for that. Um, but he learned something in his need. Listen. 
Not that I am speaking of being in need, verse 11, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret to facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Wow. Paul's talking about extreme circumstances. And he's saying, I have learned the secret to be content regardless of what's happening around me. What's that secret, Paul? You may be asking. Tell us that secret so that we too can be content. That's when he lands on Philippians 4.13. This is the secret. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. What can I do? Scale Mount, Ever- Scale Mount Everest? No. Plant a garden even though I tend to kill succulents? No. Write a novel? No. Those are not the things that we can do through him who strengthens us. I'm sure if you can do any of those things, you're doing it through God's strength. Yes, don't get me wrong. But what the verse means... I can do all things means I can live in all circumstances. I can do whatever God's called me to do regardless of whether things are favorable or not favorable, in season or out of season, difficult, easy, or hard, or somewhere in between. I can do all of these things in every and all circumstances because Christ strengthens me. That's what he's saying. So I can, therefore, back to the 10th step, find contentment in where I am and in what I have. I don't have to be enslaved by covetousness, jealousy, and envy, because in Christ, he gives me all that I need. He gives me the ability to endure where I am and what I'm going through. I can find contentment because I am in Christ. And I think this is a great final tenth step from slavery to sovereignty because this is one that we can practice every single day. I think it's one that's the easiest to ignore. It's one of the hardest to get to. And so we have these ten steps leading us from slavery to sovereignty. So what I want us to do, friends, is to give up our addiction to slavery. Huh? Yeah. Yeah, you heard me right. We are slaves. We are addicted to slavery. We want often to be enslaved. And and I hear you now thinking, no, I don't. I want to be free. That's the whole idea. But no, we have an addiction Right? Remember how like Alcoholics Anonymous have the 12 steps to recovery. God here is giving us 10 spiritual steps to recovery from our addiction to the house of slavery, to Egypt. We are addicted. Why? Because it was comfortable. Because it was known. 
Do you remember in Exodus chapter 16, how Israel, this was actually just a couple chapters before these 10 steps, the Israelites complained that they didn't have the things they needed and that they wanted somebody to lead them back to Egypt because there they cried, we have the melons and the leeks and the In-N-Out burgers and the the Netflix to watch and the freezers with all kinds of goodies in them. You know, they're complaining about what they don't have in the wilderness. What they're remembering was the security and comfort that slavery bought, brought them. Because yes, the gap between slavery to sovereignty can be hard. There are withdrawals as we try to give up our addiction to slavery. That's why we need these 10 steps. They help us give up this addiction. They help us recover. They help us to detox. Now, there is a great book on, of essays by Theodore, uh, let me not butcher his name, Theodore Dalrymple. Uh, the book is called Life at the Bottom. The first essay changed my life, and I'm not exaggerating when I say that. It is one of the pivotal, excuse me, it's one of the pivotal reads of my life, and I have passed it on to many people, now to many of you. Um, I'm compiling some of the first sentences of the first paragraphs of this essay. And here's what he writes. He says, It is a mistake to suppose that all men want to be free. On the contrary, if freedom entails responsibility, many of them want none of it. They would happily exchange their liberty for a modest, if illusory, security. They would happily exchange your liberty for a modest security, even if it's an illusion. He continues, The aim of untold millions is to be free to do exactly as they choose and for someone else to pay when things go wrong. To experience themselves as putty in the hands of fate. In short... We have an addiction to slavery because we don't want to be free, because we don't want responsibility for our actions. We would prefer to passively cruise through life, letting it form us and do things to us as if we are putty, so that we are virtually scotch-free on everything that goes on. The devil made me do it. It's one of the classic old ways of saying it. We want to dismiss responsibility for our actions, behavior, and conduct. But in order to give up our addiction to slavery, we need to begin taking responsibility for actions, our behaviors, and our conducts. That's what it requires. God's 10 steps are here saying you need to make choices in how you act, behave, and conduct yourself. And here are 10 ways to do it. We need to silence our excuses. Oh, if I was in a different situation, or if that person didn't look at me that way, or if my parents hadn't beat me, or if I had a better education, or if that job had accepted my application, or if my colleague got didn't get the promotion and I got it, or if that ice patch wasn't there and I didn't slide into it, or you can go on and on and on and on with the excuses. Excuses are enabling our addiction to slavery. We must eliminate ruthlessly excuses. The dog ate my homework is your addiction to not wanting to have responsibility to why you didn't do your homework. The dog ate my homework. 
classic one, right? No one actually says that, do they? Rather, I didn't do my homework. Now, there could have been a slew of reasons why you didn't, and some of them may be legitimate. Your grandfather had a stroke, now you, you sat in the emergency room all night? Great. Don't blame it on your grandfather. You didn't do it. You might have had good reasons, but the bottom line is, yeah, I didn't do it. Because I made a choice. I made a choice to prioritize an emergency over a mundane homework assignment. Sorry, I'm using a homework assignment as an example, but I think it serves a purpose because really isn't life full of homework assignments. See, the bottom line is that we are making choices left and right. So silence the excuses. So take responsibility for actions, behavior, conduct, silence your excuses, and finally, refuse to surrender your power. Refuse to surrender it. The 10 steps have shown us ways that we can stop surrendering our power to other things and emotions and thoughts and so forth. But also, when we say things like, he made me, or I have to, you are surrendering your power. It's not he made me, it's I'm choosing to do this because I don't want the consequences of not doing it. Or it's not I have to, but I get to. I get to because I'm choosing to, because I see the benefits. Even though I don't feel like doing it, I am choosing to do it because I see that there is something worth doing this for. So don't don't surrender your power. Refuse to do that. Take ownership. Adam and Eve are a classic example, right? I and mean, I've talked many times about this. In Genesis 3, they, they're the ones who addict us to slavery. They don't take responsibility for the actions, behavior, conduct. They blame, right? They don't silence their excuses. They blame the serpent, the woman, all kinds of things. Ultimately, God is and his hidden. They blame him in there. The woman you gave me. And they surrender their power, right? Rather than taking the opportunity, God gave them the opportunity to own their power. He said, what happened? They could have risen up and said, we did this, we're sorry. But instead, they surrender their power and they begin to point at everything else. When we start pointing at everything else, you are virtually saying, it's all more powerful than I am. When the whole time, God is trying to lead us from slavery, which is where we're stuck, to sovereignty. We are sons and daughters of the king. John says that Christ came to make us sons and daughters of God. That's powerful, friends. So if we're in a place where we're asking the question, well, now what are we going to do? You have 10 answers right here. You have 10 steps. So are 9 of 10 of them working for you? Great. Work on that 10th one. Are you only taking the first step? Great, work on the second. Let's go through these 10 steps and see how much richer life is as God meant it to be lived. Remember, God gave us these commands because he delivered us out of the house of slavery. Live powerfully and free, my friends.